The Tom Woods Show, episode 1139. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, anti-gun arguments are repeated often and loudly by high-profile people, but they are easily smashed and refuted with my free ebook. Your Facebook friends are wrong about guns. Check it out at wrongaboutguns.com. Hi, everybody. Tom Woods here. I have been out of town for about a week, and yet those episodes just kept on coming, and they were juicy ones, and they just were in automated fashion just coming out day after day while I was having some fun in New York City with the family and visiting old friends like uh, spending a little bit of time with Gene Epstein, Dave Smith, Michael Malice. Great, great fun. Bob Murphy, of course, I spent some time with, too. We did an escape room together. And anyway, a lot of fun, but now I am back, and what I want to do today is share with you an appearance I made recently on the Free Man Beyond the Wall podcast, which you can check out at freemanbeyondthewall.com, hosted by a fellow who goes by the name of Mance Raider, and we talked about a variety of interesting topics. It's fun once in a while to be on the interviewee side of the microphone, and it came out well enough that I thought, I think this would be a fun one to share with the folks. So here we go. I want to thank Dr. Tom Woods for coming on the 100th episode of the Free Man Beyond the Wall podcast. Thank you so much. How are you doing today, Tom? I'm doing great. 100 podcast episodes is a terrific milestone. I forget where I read it, but and it may just be apocryphal, but I've heard that the magic number is seven. It's something like the median podcast does not actually get past seven. The median is seven, so half the podcast get past seven, half die before seven. I don't know if that's the case, but to get to a hundred is an amazing thing, so congratulations. When I first started doing a podcast, I had been listening to you, and you, I actually heard you say that. I heard you say that if people get past seven, that they're pretty Ah, much in. So that that helps me Maybe I learned it from myself. (laughs) Maybe I taught myself that number. Okay. Well, I want to jump in because you, so many people identify you uh, through economics, especially because of Contra Krugman, and I wanted to talk about history today, and specifically how somebody like yourself, somebody who has, you have a doctorate in history from Columbia, right? Yeah, that's right. If you were writing the history of, say, beginning right around the time that Trump announced he was going to run for president, until right now, how would you write that? And let me let, let me ask you from this point of view. I, I want to do it in a couple categories. How would you write it in how we've seen the culture react to it? Oh, boy. Well, I'd also like to I definitely would want to write the political story as well. But the cultural story maybe is the story, because in politics, sometimes you get promised a lot. But very rarely does the politician deliver. Culture can be quite different. In politics, Horton's Law seems to hold, uh, named after my friend Scott Horton. Horton's Law is that politicians keep all their bad promises and break all their good ones. And that seems to have been the case with with Trump. Everything he threatened to do, he's wound up doing. And let's say a lot of the things we hoped he might do, he's uh, been dragging his feet on. So politically, right, so that's that's a separate story. But culturally, that really is the story that helps to account for how he got in, because there it wasn't necessarily that 
his supporters went through and studied all his policy proposals and read the endorsements by various economists. No, nobody ever does that. They had a sense that something's arrayed against us. They, they didn't feel like it was a conspiracy necessarily, but they did feel like we've been treated like garbage, like we are simultaneously, A, responsible for all the ills of mankind, and B, a bunch of stupid yokels incapable of doing anything. Well, how both A and B could be true simultaneously, I don't know. But I think that combination is toxic enough to have made a lot of Americans feel like if there's a guy, no matter how unrefined, no matter how radically different in presentation style he may be, who nevertheless appears to be giving the middle finger to the very people in our culture who can't stand the sight of us, and who pretty much says, I'm not going to be governed by their crazy rules. I'm going to go out and say the Iraq war was a mistake, which is the thing I should be saying. Uh, and I'm also going to say some politically incorrect things. Then they're going to support that. And, of course, what's interesting is that Jeb Bush would never, ever say the politically incorrect things. But at the same time, he'd be glad to say that the wars have, have pretty much been good. You know, maybe we made a few mistakes, blah, 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 the usual mealy mouth nonsense. And that gets a pass. And I think there's also a, a weird realization that you can't say certain words or you'll be destroyed unless you're a billionaire like Trump and they can't destroy you. You can't say certain words, but it's perfectly fine to endorse this insane foreign policy. Nobody's going to come after you for that. Nobody said Jeb Bush is unfit to be president because he supported the Iraq war. Nobody said that. Uh, and, he, you know, he hasn't used any insensitive language. So that means he's, you know, we wouldn't vote for him, but at least he passes the test. That's a very, very strange set of priorities. So that that whole thing, the whole political correctness thing, the feeling that we in middle America are hated. I mean, not just disliked, but actively hated by the left and by well, where the left dominates, academia, which pervades all our lives because everybody's sending their kids to those colleges and to local schools, the media, the political classes by and large, even many of the so-called conservatives have been duly cowed, so they can be counted on to have all the correct likes and dislikes. The entertainment industry, in other words, anybody with any real clout, uh, um, uh, corporate CEOs can be relied upon to get on board for whatever the PC cause of the day is. And I think they just said, you know, whatever his position is on, uh, you know, trade with China or currency manipulation, I don't even get half of that stuff, they might say. But doggone it, this is the only person I've seen in a long time who says, I represent you and I am going to fight back and there's nothing these people can do about it. So you think that that just that, fight that he's willing to take on is enough for them to continue to support, even though he's just completely got off the rails uh, economically. He's got, I mean, the things that we're seeing that he's talking about as far as foreign policy goes are just a nightmare. Uh, so you, you see it as just the fact that he's willing to, or here, here's something I've been saying. It seems like these people are willing to fight the culture war because they think it's something they can win, whereas someone like me is constantly railing against the state, and they see that as just, you know, I'm, I'm fighting windmills. 
Well, I think a lot of his supporters have never really thought of it that way. They wouldn't think of themselves as fighting against the state. I don't think they think in abstractions like that. They think about particular things they want to fight against that that they dislike. As for whether they're going to stick with him, well, I think probably foreign policy was the weak link in all this because I think a lot of his supporters are as confused as he is on foreign policy. Because on the one hand, they want to go get the Muslims, but on the other hand, they do have some kind of inchoate understanding that this is costing an awful lot of money, stirring up a lot of hornet's nests, and we sure do have a lot of problems at home. Maybe, how about we just give it a try to let these people solve their own problems for a change? How about we, I mean, I, they're at least open to that idea because he kept expressing that idea and they cheered it. But then if he said, look, I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to do this or that in the Middle East. They also cheered that. So it's hard to know. That I don't think would necessarily be a deal breaker. It would be for some of the intellectuals who follow him. But, you know, they're a pretty small minority of any political movement. I think it would be a bigger deal that the budget thing was a disaster. Because, of course, if if Hillary Clinton had signed that budget, you'd be hearing howls of outrage. Howls. Instead, you hear kind of embarrassed silence happening on that front and if he if he just is perceived as somebody who backs down or doesn't actually deliver on the stuff he promised like if he really doesn't deliver on immigration then i think his followers uh you know they're not necessarily going to desert him because they're certainly not going to vote for a democrat but they're not going to have the kind of zeal and energy they had the first time around and given the forces arrayed against him. He needs every ounce of that energy he can summon. Hmm. Now, looking at the, I want to go to the economic issues of the day because, I mean, that's where libertarians, where a lot of our concentration is on. I sent out a tweet about when, when, when all this, when he first started talking about tariffs, I sent out a tweet and it's, and I said, watch out. Those of us who talk about free markets and no tariffs are going to be called globalists. Two hours and 34 minutes later, I was accused of being a globalist. Yeah, that's just that's just the worst. See, this is a case where Horton's law really applies with the tariffs. There's no question about that. And all you have to do is just peel back one layer to get to the real truth of it. I recently did an episode of my podcast, The Tom Woods Show, uh, as a debate episode where I took people on both sides of the tariff issue and they had a contentious but nevertheless cordial exchange where I think we generated more light than heat, and it was very, very good. It's TomWoods.com slash 1131. That's episode 1131. I was really happy with it. But as the moderator, I had the privilege of asking each side a question, and the question I asked to the pro-tariff side ran like this. In 2012, Barack Obama boasted that he had saved – 1,200 jobs by putting a stop to cheap Chinese tires, some kind of deal where he was limiting Chinese tires coming into America. And that saved 1,000 jobs or by some estimates 1,200 jobs. And wasn't that great? 1,200 people are working now because of that. All right. What was the cost of that? The higher prices of tires that resulted came to $1.1 billion, which means that well, for each tire maker job saved in the U.S., it costs $900,000. Now, 
Now, what does the average tire maker in America make, for heaven's sake? About 40 grand a year. So where'd the other $860,000 in higher tire prices, where'd that all go? It lined corporate pockets. So when you get down to the nitty-gritty, that's what the protectionists are unwittingly doing, is they're lining the pockets of the very people they think are selling out America or or whatever. I mean, they, they're they always on about corporations and, and this and that. Uh, but here they are. That's That's who wound up capturing the gains of that. And I don't think when people favor protectionism, that's what they have in mind, a system where Everybody pays much more for a consumer good, and the workers in that industry get 5% of the gains. That just can't be. And so I, I said, what? why would you expect this to be any different from any other government program where the benefits wind up being concentrated and they wind up uh, – they, this winds up changing the rules in ways that benefit the already well-off and people with political clout. Why would you think tariffs would be any different? Uh, and moreover, what about the consequences for all the American companies that use, for example, steel? Yes, you could save 140,000 jobs in steel, but what about the millions of jobs in industries that rely on steel and that can't afford just to have this major spike in the price of steel? This is all left out. This is all left out, and we get we get sob stories about individual people and no acknowledgement at all of of millions of people who will suffer. That's the problem, is that, unfortunately, you just don't get that kind of sober analysis. It just becomes nationalistic nonsense of us versus them, when, yeah, it should be us versus them. It should be us, the people who work an honest living, against the them, our overlords, who claim to be protecting us and looking out for our interests, but even when they... Even when they impose tariffs supposedly to help workers, even that doesn't help the workers. Wake the heck up. See, I was, I mean, when you yell wake up, you want to say another word other than heck, but <laughs> I have a certain persona to maintain, you understand? I understand. Now, we're, we're well aware that in basically in, in all ages, well, I would say in the last 100, 120 years, the general public is woefully ignorant of economics. Recently, I've noticed online People have asked me, you know, well, why are you against tariffs? And they, when I explain it to them, you know, when I go to chapter 11 of, you know, when I just start talking chapter 11 of economics in one lesson, which is, you know, one of the easiest things for the, a, a normal person to understand of why tariffs don't work, it's almost like they don't want to, you know, even when you tell them the answer, they don't want to know it because they're just... It's this populism thing. It's this, why are we, you know, why can't we have the jobs here? How can we compete with China who's using slave labor? How, how, do, we, how do we get through this? How can we compete against the, the notorious efficiency of slaves? Because everybody knows that slave economies always prosper. Slavery is the most efficient form of labor in the world. I, I don't know where they're getting that idea. But that's not true. But yeah, I I get that that we get we get this constantly. But the long and the short of it is these are arguments that, as you say, go back well, not just decades to Henry Hazlitt, but they go back hundreds of years. And the question is, if I'm able, let's say China or any other country. I mean, let's let's even leave aside the prejudice against China. Just pick some random country is able to supply us with some widget. 
at one-tenth the cost of what it would cost us to make that widget. Well, that means, you know, we save 90% of the cost. We now have 90%. We have that money to now go spend on um, some other some some other project that we wouldn't have had the money on. We can buy more of A, B, and C product. We can buy more of A, B, and C service. We can donate more money to A, B, and C cause because this is all available to us now because of the inexpensive price. That's a significant thing. And if it happened that, let's say, the sky opened up and just dumped smartphones on us or flat screen TVs on us, we'd be out of our minds to say this is this damages us. We, we certainly don't want these TVs coming down on us. We don't want a free gift of nature. We want to work for these TVs. Surely we would see the, the flaw in that. We would be expending unnecessary effort that could be devoted to the production of something else because now we have free TVs coming down. I mean, for example, that is exactly what Frederick Bastiat had in mind when he wrote his Petition of the Candlemakers, which was satirical. He wrote this, of course, in the 19th century when he lived. And uh, the idea there was the candlemakers were upset that there's all this free competition out there. Coming from the sun. How are we supposed to compete against the sun? We make candles. The sun gives away free light all day. So what we need to do to make ourselves richer, and of course there's an equivocation there with the word ourselves, isn't it? We need to make ourselves richer by everybody closing and shuttering up their, their windows and blinds and drapes so that they then need candles. Well, does that enrich ourselves or does it enrich a targeted group? And then even as I gave with the example of the Chinese tires, even the targeted group that supposedly benefits, a lot of times the target in that targeted group is completely missed, and you just wind up enriching cronies. And then we're supposed to sit back and feel good about how we've protected the American worker. This is, this is laughable. How do you answer the argument, which we, we hear so often, that, you know, well, show me where this has worked. You're advocating for deregulation, a free market, laissez-faire economy. Show me where the show me where this has worked, so that you know, I, I need I need an example, so that I can see because we need this government to protect us from these big businesses. All right. Well, there are different ways you could take it. You could say I don't have a pure example because, of course, we're all propagandized into believing that this would be the worst thing, that, that, yes, we can't live without our wise public servants. I mean, right away, that ought to creep you out a little bit, <laughs> that whole thing. But we couldn't, they would come get us, the bad guys who produce things for a living, would come get us if people who produce nothing for a living weren't protecting us. Something right off the bat should make you think, all right, the proof for this better be really strong. The proof better be really strong. All right, so a few ways you could tackle it. One would be, well, if I look on a continuum, if I look at the different countries of the world on a continuum, and the continuum is based on how much economic freedom is in each country, well, it seems to be the case that the more economic freedom there is in a country, the more prosperous the poorest people in that country are. And there, the statistics on this are overwhelming. I have some um, numbers on this in. Um, I think it's in my book, Sane Space. I wrote a book, instead of Safe Space, I wrote a, a free book called Sane Space. So you can get that at sanespacebook.com. But anyway, I got all the statistics about this. It's the opposite of what people think. Uh, so that's, that's one thing. The closer we get to this ideal, the better off even the poorest are. Secondly, the big businesses will come get us thing. Well, 
that was supposed to be true in the 19th century when we supposedly had this Wild West style economy and any, you know, and, and these wicked people dominated it through, uh, you know, their, their control of, of different markets. But when you set aside all the hysteria and the lurid photographs from your sixth grade textbook that I also read, I was in public school in the sixth grade. I couldn't understand how anyone could be laissez faire either. Didn't you read the textbook? Look at these kids. Look at the terrible conditions they're working in. Yeah, I get that. That's because the whole society was dirt poor. Yeah, that happens when a society is dirt poor. Kids work so the family doesn't starve. That's why that's happening. It's not like, you know, before Hillary Clinton came along, nobody cared about their kids. It's all kids worked everywhere in all societies forever. So as to avoid starvation, the question is, how do we help them avoid starvation just by banning the very practice that's helping them avoid starvation? Or we make the economy more physically productive through capital investment that is not taxed away so that we can physically produce more stuff, enjoy greater abundance and put downward pressure on the resulting abundance of goods relative to wage rates and increase everybody's purchasing power. That's the way people have seen their standard of living rise. So when you look at the 19th century, it turns out that the story about big business dominating the poor, suffering consumer is just not the case, not the case at all. To the contrary, if you look at the industries where monopoly is alleged to have occurred, in there are 17 for which we have data. This is taken from Tom DiLorenzo's scholarly work. And in 15 of them, we see that output is increasing faster than in other industries and prices are falling faster than in other industries. I mean, you look at steel falling about 90 percent over the course of 30 years. Uh, same thing with with uh, refined oil, etc. So the stories are not even right. So th there'd be that. So the long and the short of it is you put all this together and it strongly suggests that laissez-faire yields you more wealth. And now this is a tough one to give because most people have been too propagandized about it. But Great Britain at the time of the uh, or England at the time of the Industrial Revolution would be an example. And and there um, there you have a case where. Yes, obviously, people are working in uh, conditions that nobody would want to work in today. But that's not the point. You don't compare. I mean, how juvenile is it to try to compare people living two, three hundred years ago to people today and saying their conditions were worse than conditions today? Well, of course, what you should be comparing is people then to other people then. Like today, for example, when people say, oh, you libertarians should love Somalia. Well, you don't compare Somalia to the United States, you dolt. You compare it to comparable African economies. And when you make that comparison, the stateless period in Somalia actually comes out looking pretty darn good, as a matter of fact. But nobody who raises this objection to you obviously has studied Somalia for even a fraction of a second. Well, in, in Britain, what we have with the uh, Industrial Revolution is we see... An increase in what? Caloric intake per person, living space per capita, uh, income, life expectancy. So, yes, obviously nobody wants to work in the conditions and the hard uh, hours that they worked today. But these things were a considerable improvement over all other options they had, particularly for a growing population. There's only so many people who can be supported in a purely agricultural economy. After a while, what are these people going to do? If they can't be integrated into the agricultural economy, they need to have something. 
And as as Ludwig von Mises said, the factories literally saved these people from starvation. So, yeah, I would say that worked, even though today nobody wants to go back to the 18th century and live in those conditions. But what is it that ameliorated those conditions? It's the fact that we managed, at least for a while, to beat back the redistributors long enough to accumulate the capital necessary to increase productivity enough to create abundance that can support this many people in reasonable comfort. If you want to see, as uh, I think it was T.S. Ashton says, if you want to see what happens when you have a population explosion without an industrial revolution, then you could look at the case of India um, or other cases like this around the world. But it was industry and the market economy that allowed that industry to flourish that set in motion the process by which over the past couple of hundred years, the per capita income around the world has increased 11 fold. That has there's no precedent for that uh, in the history of the world. So I would say our side deserves the benefit of the doubt, considering all it's gotten is uninformed, hectoring, skepticism, uh, 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 obstacles, uh, uh, ideological nonsense for hundreds of years. I'd say we deserve the benefit of the doubt, given that track record. I wanted to move on to the subject of just basically libertarianism in the modern day. You you posted yesterday, you shared uh, Dave Smith on Essie Cup's show. I saw Elizabeth Nolan Brown um, talking about the, the law that outlawed websites like Backpage, and she was on Laura Ingraham. And both of these episodes, the host specifically attacked you know, in, in one, in, in the SE Cup case, Dave, in Laura Ingraham, uh, case, Elizabeth Bowen Brown, they were specifically going after libertarianism. They were, you know, SE wanted to, I want the libertarian, and I want the libertarian, um, opinion on this, and Laura Ingraham was like, and this is why libertarianism doesn't work, and this is why libertarianism doesn't work, just attacking Elizabeth Nolan Brown for being anti-woman, basically. Maybe it's just because this is what, you know, I'm on social media all the time. I do a podcast. I get to hear people crapping all over libertarianism all the time. But it seems like it's almost becoming mainstream now, like they're actually targeting libertarians. Do you have you have you noticed that? Yeah. And of course, we don't have the high profile spokesman we once did. And uh, if we ever really did, of course, we had Ron Paul, but he's not in the public eye as much as he used to be. And we're an easy target. I mean, and the funny thing is we are in no way in a position of authority anywhere. Now, obviously, in the fevered dreams of the left, we're running the country, you know, right? Because, because you know, the, in the years leading up to the financial crisis, we had exactly the economic arrangement we wanted, you know, a Federal Reserve and all that. It's just what we wanted. But, but, but back on planet Earth, we have pretty much zero influence over anything right now. I mean, Dave Smith gets on CNN, and, and there's some good stuff that goes on in Fox Business here and there, but we have no influence, really. Nobody says, well, let's go find out what the libertarians think, and then we'll we'll implement that. So the idea that you would spend your time on us is uh, is astonishing to me, unless there is something inherently appealing about the ideas that you need to intervene to try to stop from spreading, because really... Left liberals have 800 gazillion times 
the influence we have. Neocons have way, way more influence than we have. Why would you even bother with the libertarians? You know, I mean, you might as well, I'll just say, it's not a good use of your time if you're behaving rationally, which makes me think they're not. Is it because of just the way the political landscape is right now? So many people are disenfranchised and so many, it, it seems like there is no coherent ideology anywhere, anywhere except ours and, you know, the most oppressive, you know, people like neocons or, um, you know, realists, people like that. Um, is it because, do you think they see that they want to attack it now because they see that it could be something that people might try to glom onto in the future? Well, you know, what's interesting is, is to hear, of all people, Jennifer Rubin of the Washington Post and Max Boot of whatever wicked outlet he's involved with these days, these people are just, I don't like the term warmonger because I think it's just, uh, it's a sledgehammer term. It has no subtlety to it. There's no way H.L. Mencken would have used a hideous word like this. But sometimes the shoe fits. And if it doesn't fit them, it doesn't fit anybody. And these people are going around calling themselves classical liberals, which is a term that some libertarians use when they want to shy away from libertarian. Because classical liberal sounds like something you could get away with at a cocktail party. Well, I'm a classical liberal. Oh, your friends say. And they, in the back of their minds, they think, I don't really know what that is, but that sounds all right. Uh, I like classical things and liberal. Well, that's good. So, I mean, it's, it's, I always thought it was a weasel word for people who didn't want to just come right out and say, yep, I'm a libertarian. But look, if not everybody wants to do that, so if they want to use classical liberal, that's fine. But these people, embracing that term and and running away. I mean, in other words, they're taking the Trump moment and saying, well, I don't want to associate myself with the Republicans at this moment. And conservative is going to just call to mind whoever's in the White House right now. I mean, under George W. Bush, everybody thought a conservative was George W. Bush. So I don't want them to think I'm a Trump person. So I guess and I don't want to say libertarian because I do know they're anti-war. But what if I just kind of muddy the waters by saying classical liberal? So, yeah, we are definitely getting people who opportunistically are trying to latch on to our terms which is why I don't think it's a stupid waste of time to be clarifying those terms and to be exclusionary about those terms. So can you believe I said the word exclusionary? <laughs> We're supposed to be inclusive, and yet the last thing in the world the left liberals are is inclusive. The neocons are not inclusive. They don't say, oh, for heaven's sake, let's make sure Paul Gottfried has a place in our, you know, in our commentary. Right? He doesn't exist. These people do not exist for the neocons. Well, I'm not saying we have to be as pig-headed and obnoxious as they are, but we do need to make clear what we stand for and what the terms mean. Well, I really appreciate your time. I know that you're I know that you're busy today and you're traveling. Um, I wanted to give you give you an opportunity to plug. I mean, you, you have so much going on. So um, here, tell us about um, tell us about what you think is mo most important going on with you right now. Well, at this moment, one thing that uh, your listeners may enjoy, I just released an ebook called Your Facebook Friends Are Wrong About Guns. Now, I know we all have a lot of Facebook friends who are like-minded, but you also have, you know, your Uncle Ted and your Aunt Zelda, and you've got those folks from high school who it's like they haven't been reading any of your posts at all. They still have their ridiculous views. You can't understand that. So, yes, you do have some Facebook friends who are wrong about guns. So over at wrongaboutguns.com, I give this little ebook away. It smacks down any argument you're ever going to come across. Don't cost you nothing, 
But I will tell you, I'm going to be totally upfront with you about what it does cost. You're going to give me your email address. I will email you the book. And then I'm going to email you my newsletter. You think, oh, forget it. Deal breaker. I am not getting a newsletter. Forget it. Well, uh, the one area where I will boast about my abilities is that I put out a darn good newsletter. It, it is hot, this newsletter. It is, uh, you're going to enjoy reading it every, day, every uh, weekday, as often as I can send it out. I mean, with five children, sometimes I miss a day or if I'm traveling, but it's good stuff. Like people who are in the know, when, when the Tom Woods letter comes into their box, they open that thing up and they devour it like a guilt, the guilty pleasure that it is. So you'll say, yep, I hate getting email from all these other places, but that Woods email, that's the one that I delight in getting and that I open every time. So just give me a try, right? Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm pulling your leg. Give that a try. It doesn't cost you a thing. But check it out at wrongaboutguns.com. I can testify. I get your I get your um, newsletter, and it is normally pretty salty. And uh, I, <laughs> that's a good word. <laughs> I, I I appreciate I appreciate that because, uh, like I told you, I'm from New York, and uh, I like I like a salty attitude. So, Tom, thank you very much for coming on today, and uh, I wish you safe travels. The pleasure was mine. Thank you. All right, folks. I hope you enjoyed that. Now, while I was gone in New York. More websites kept being created by people who listen to The Tom Woods Show. And there's one I want to tell you about today called resiststatism.com. The idea there is that they want to promote libertarianism in the tradition of Rothbard. They want to be principled. They want to cover current events, economics, ethics, all kinds of topics. They have several writers contributing to the site, but they view it as being ideally at some point a go-to site for principled libertarian commentary, but also an avenue for publishing the work both of of known libertarians, but also relatively unknown up-and-comers, let's say, who may have more difficulty getting their work published on more established libertarian sites. So that's certainly an admirable goal. So I would urge you to check it out at resiststatism.com. I'll link to that at tomwoods.com slash 1139 as the listener website mentioned. And, of course, they got this nice shout-out because they used my link to get their hosting, and they get other neat benefits, too, to help them get off the ground with some fresh, targeted, free traffic coming at them. So do give them a shot and um, support a listener of the show by heading over to resiststatism.com. All right, that's it for today, everybody. Thanks for listening. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time.